Tonight, we have Dr. Mark Genelette, who is going to talk to us about how to read the Bible. Uh, Mark is a professor at Beeson Divinity School. Uh, he is also the, is it the, the lay canon theologian at Cathedral Church of the Advent? It's a really long title. Um, Mark is, uh, he's a good friend. He is a great communicator, and uh, he will do an excellent job of just talking through the Bible and, and how we can read this. This is the format for tonight. Uh, for those of you who are new to our theological talkbacks, we have a time of theology uh, that uh, Dr. Genelette will bring us, and then we will have a break and we'll have a time in which you could talk back. Uh, by talk back, I mean ask questions. Uh, don't just you know, get up and say, I'd like a few things to say. Uh, but we're going to take a break uh, about halfway through. You can get some more to drink. We'll have an extended time of Q&A. So if you do have some questions, just, just be sure to write them down uh, so you remember them afterwards. And uh, that's all I have. So let me open this up in prayer and we will get started. Father God, thank you so much for this time that we could gather together, be with friends, um, be with the family uh, of Christ here. Thank you for your, for your spirit that unites us. And thank you for Mark coming and uh, speaking to us. We ask that you would use him to speak mildly to us, uh, that you would transform hearts and minds in this place. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, hello again. Um, I, I got to do this with you all last year. And um, I mentioned it then, I should probably just mention it again. I mean, it's, it's a pinnacle of my existence to be able to talk about Jesus, the Bible, in a bar. I mean, it's, it's, I, I still have to sort of get my head around this. I'm, I'm a, I will always be a recovering fundamentalist, so this is a, uh, um, it's part, of my, part of my DNA. Um, let me, I, I, I don't have a game plan for tonight. That should really make you nervous. I, I have some talking points, I have some notes from some lectures that I've done. Um, I really want this time to be probably, and tomorrow night will look very different. I mean, I'm sure it was just by the nature of the beast it will. Um, I want there to be a level of repartee, a kind of back and forth between us as you see fit to do that because we're talking about um, the Bible, and, and I think the Bible um, raises a lot of good and critical questions for us. It raises problems for us that as Christians we have to deal with. I'll be honest with you tonight. I'll, I'll, I'll answer as best I can. Um, I hope to shape the conversation tonight in a theological framework because everything that I'm going to say tonight about the Bible is rooted in a Christian confession of faith. Um, and I, sh I should start on the outset and just lay that out for you. I, I, don't, I don't know most of you. I don't know what kind of questions that you're coming in with theologically. Um, I, I, at the Advent where I attend, uh, the youth director there, Cameron Cole, and some others hold uh, a, um, a, a, a group meeting for uh, teenager agnostics and skeptics uh, that meet at Church Street Coffee in Mountain Brook. They asked me to come to this a few weeks ago. I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, with some pretty small, smart teenagers, and uh, and this one guy, I mean, he came loaded for bear, and he he wanted to talk about the Bible, and he wanted to talk about the Bible from the moment we got out the gate all the way to the end, and he raised all these kinds of questions, and I, I told him, and I'll tell you, I, I'm going to be frustrating for you to talk to because the way in which I think about these things theologically is inherently circular. I can't get away from it. In other words, why? 
um, is the Bible the Word of God? Well, the Bible's the Word of God because I confess that to be true by his own self-giving and an act of divine revelation. Um, uh, Herman Bovink, who is one of my favorite theologians from the early 20th century, and I'll quote him some tonight. Um, and if you're looking for a good dog name, Bovink is not a bad idea. Um, but uh, Bovink, he said, when someone asks you, why do you believe that as an article of Christian faith? The answer is because it's in the word of God. And then when they follow that up and they say, and why do you believe that that's a word of God? Bo why do you believe it's the word of God? Bovink says, at that point, the Christian has to be more reticent to give an answer. Why? Well, because there's a certain kind of construction of knowledge, how we think, how we order our thoughts, that's shaped by our Christian faith. We are shaped in that way. I mean, there's a lot of fascinating work that's going on. Um, I'm already off script. But um, there's some fascinating work that's, been, that's going on right now where there's a lot of talk. Maybe some of you have read some of the work by this um, Calvinist Reformed guy, from Michigan named James K.A. Smith. I don't know if any of you have read Smith's work, but he's doing a lot to talk about the role that liturgy or worship or embodiment plays with the way in which we think and know and come to understand the world. Um, we tend to think that maybe we can just kind of engage ideas on this abstract plane, and we can't do that. We're shaped by liturgies. We're embodied people. You are shaped, you Redeemer community church people, who go to ch your church every Sunday, which I assume is the majority of you, you are shaped in more ways than you know in your understanding of the faith and the Bible and Christianity, the gospel, by what you're doing on Sunday, even by standing up and singing together and sitting down and worshiping together and kneeling and praying together. All of this embodiment existence that we have together shapes the way in which we know. And I was telling this teenage boy, and he was just getting so frustrated with me, and I was getting frustrated with me too, I guess. Um, I was like, listen, I'm working within a certain construction of knowledge that's shaped by an interior commitment to faith. I, I don't, I'm not going to try to claim neutrality. Um, I'm not going to attempt to even BS you with a little neutrality. I can't do that because I want you to know from the beginning that my understanding of the Bible, my understanding of God, my understanding of the gospel are all shaped in an interpenetrating communication, the one with the other. They're all shaped by a confession of faith. That goes all the way back to a guy named Anselm who was borrowing this from Augustine, who was borrowing it from the Bible. And that is, faith always precedes understanding. You know, th this was the lie, or don't say the lie, because I have a lot of time for modernity. Modernity gave us a lot of gifts that we need to be thankful for in our modern era. I don't want to deny that. But one of the ugly grandchildren of modernity, born out of the 17th century and into the 18th century, was this notion that what we need to do is bracket off our belief. We need to set it aside, build a case on the base, uh, basis of neutral evidence, and from that neutral evidence, then we can let faith come in on the back end because now it's reasonable. And I, frankly, I'm not sure what else to call that now, and I had the privilege of hindsight. But from our, our vantage point now, I don't know what else to call that but epistemic or mental or cognitive idolatry. That's what it is. And because faith 
shapes the way in which we understand. Faith precedes knowledge. It's on the front end. I don't set it to the side in order to construct some sort of neutral basis by which everyone can come to the table of evidence and everyone can then agree and go away by whichever best arguments win. Right? I, 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 so if, if you think in that way, you're going to hate tonight. All right? So I'm just going to warn you. Um, I did want to read something to you um, before we uh, hop in. I guess we're in. Um, but I wanted to read Psalm 19 because I think Psalm 19 is one of the better places to start in a conversation about the Bible. All right? So Psalm 19, can I read this to you? The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech nor are their words, their voice is not heard, yet their voice go out, goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy. What a beautiful description, right? Like a strong man runs its course with joy, its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and nothing is hid from its heat. They divide my clothes. Um, Oop, I've turned the page five. They, they're not dividing my clothes. Uh, uh, <laughs> that, was <the> wrong, <laughs> that was a weird jump. And nothing is hid from its heat. <clears throat> Think about that. All right, so in those first six verses of Psalm 19, um, I'm glad you're tracking that. In the, the first uh, six verses of Psalm 19, we have a classic expression of what Christian theologians have typically called general revelation. The fact that the heavens declare the glory of God. Um, the heavens and the firmament, the sun meeting um, its bridegroom in the canopy of the sky. I mean, what a gorgeous description in the Bible. The Bible is rich with this kind of imagery. Um, that All of that just shouts to us that, that God is and that God overwhelms us with his beauty. Um, it's a claim about what we might call, I guess if we want to use inflated language, the metaphysics of engaging the material in the created world. And one of the better exposés that I had of this, or, or at least illustrations of this um, that came to me recently, was reading Adana Tartt's novel, The Goldfinch. It won the Pulitzer two years ago. Anybody worked their way through that beastly tome of a book? It was a good one. Um, and it's all about this painting about the goldfish. But at the end, there's this really deep conversation about painting and music and art. And it was a conversation about metaphysics. It was a conversation about God and otherness and how we know. And he describes this painting, this old uncle figure describes it to this young man. He says, you know what it's like when you go into an art gallery and you see a painting and you know that that painting is having an encounter with you as if something beyond the painting is whispering to you, hey, psst, you, I'm talking to you. In the late 19th century, there was a German philosopher named Arthur Schopenhauer, who actually, I have a lot of time for this guy, bald head, and the pictures of him are awesome, massive white lamb, uh, lamb chops or whatever those things are called. Um, he looks incredibly doleful, unhappy. He was an angry philosopher um, who said that ethics is built on the back of charity and kindness, and then he went on to say in his private correspondence, even though I'm not charitable and I hate everybody, that's how it's supposed to be. He was, he was a rough guy. Um, but Schopenhauer talked about life, and he raised the classic question, is life worth living? And his response to that, unlike the Greek tradition, the Stoics and the Epicureans, Schopenhauer said actually life is not worth living because life is suffering. And this is the suffering that we live in. Well, what is it, Schopenhauer? 
Some of you can, I'm sympathetic to this, by the way, and you will be too, uh, absent a Christian worldview. We live in the suffering that, that lives between the continuum of desire, the suffering that comes from wanting something that we don't have, yearning for something that's not ours. That's an act of suffering. And then the other act of suffering is the boredom that comes along with getting what it is that you desired. What, we, what I call with my four kids, you know, Christmas Eve depression, right? Or Christmas night depression. Well, I guess that's it, right? All the fun's over. Now we, now we enter into boredom. And, and Schopenhauer is very clear to say, you cannot escape that continuum of existence. Like, well, goodness, let's, you know, let's go to Vegas and call it all off, right? But he did say there is one area of human existence where that is suspended, and it's when you have an encounter with music. Now, he's absent a Christian worldview. But he recognizes that in the encounter with beauty, in the encounter with something that's aesthetically rich, with, he, with reading good prose, with engaging art, with seeing a sunset, that there's something that comes from beyond that says to you, hey, psst, you, I'm talking to you. And Calvin, and by you all, have, if you've heard me before, you know that I'm a big John Calvin fan, and I hope that doesn't set your teeth on edge, but I, I really like Calvin, um, dyspeptic as he was, uh, but I like Calvin, and Calvin would have affirmed all of that, and he would have said, yes, the heavens, they declare the glory of God, um, the, 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 the engagement with the beauty of this world, the engagement with art, which is an act of sub-creation in light of the creator, all of that just whispers to us about the grandeur of God. But Calvin would go on to say, and all of that revelation that God gives to you in the general natural order is just enough to damn you. It's not enough to save you. It's just enough to make you culpable, not enough to give you redemption. I say this to students at Beeson all the time. You know, the gap between proof and persuasion is an infinite gap, right? To move from being an agnostic to a theist, and now I believe there is a God out there, is a far cry from a Christian confession of faith that says, oh, and by the way, that God is named the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who has revealed himself in Jesus of Nazareth. That's a far cry from saying, I believe there's some divine mover out there. So Calvin was quick to say, that's not enough. And that's where the psalmist goes too, right? You have the beauty of the natural world, but there's more. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. I don't think we have a better description of the scriptures anywhere in the Bible than right here. It's beautiful. The law of the Lord, it's perfect. What does it do? It revives the soul. The decrees of the Lord, they're sure. You can rest on them. They make wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear. It enlightens the eyes. And the fear of the Lord is pure. It endures forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. They're sweeter than the honey, even the drippings of a honeycomb. What a description of the beauty and the power of the word of the Lord. There's a lot to talk about here. The law of the Lord, which don't think strictly do's and don'ts when you hear that word law, right, Torah. It's the instruction of God. It's God speaking to you and talking to you from the scriptures about all of life. 
Um, the law of the Lord, it's perfect, and it's refreshing of the soul. And then he goes on to use that beautiful image of the honeycomb, which I don't know if you know anything about honey. I'm just starting to read up on this. It's fascinating. My brother-in-law keeps honeybees in South Carolina and just sent us a big quart jar of his honey. I mean, what an incredible thing honey is. You stick your hand in it, you taste it. It's sweet, it's rich. Apparently it never goes bad. You'll have to test that out before I will, but it never goes bad, right? And this is the description of the word of the Lord. It's perfect. So let's talk about the Bible, right? The Bible. You realize that the Bible comes to you in a way that's creaturely and human from the beginning to the end. Now this is worth sort of stepping back and reflecting on because there's something that we have to wrestle with tonight. And this is, to me, a very big question that we have to answer before we move into the how do we read the Bible question, the pragmatic question. The first question that I think we have to ask is, what is the Bible? What is this thing? What's our confession of faith about what the Bible is and what the Bible does? Um, the Bible is the Word of God. The Word of God. Now, some of you are linguists here, and you like language, you fiddle with words, and you're really good with words. And you know, those of you who've taken maybe some foreign languages, I don't know about you, but for me, I didn't really learn English until I was forced to, to learn another language. I mean, that was when it sort of, I, I took Greek in undergrad, and once I took Greek in undergrad, then I'm like, oh, that's a gerund. Oh, participles. I heard that word before. I, that's what happened to me. Maybe it happened to you. Um, there, there's a construction that we don't really talk about very much in English, but in most foreign languages, uh, Indo-European languages, German, even you have like Italian, they, they, they talk about what's called a genitive. It's that of construction. The house of the king, uh, the word of God. And if any of you have done language, and, I, and you know this, some of you Beesony people who are here who go where I go, and you know learning Greek and Hebrew, if you think, by the way, that that's the blue pill in the matrix that's going to solve all your Bible problems, right? Well, you know, I've got really bad news for you. Learning the biblical languages only creates more interpretive problems, right? Because now you know there are options. And this is one of those issues with that particular phrase, the word of God, it can be understood in multiple ways. The word that has its source in God, that's right. The word whose content is about God, that's a fair way of understanding that construction. But the basis of all genitives, word of God, that the basis of all of them, what they all have in some element in the connotative level is possession, the word of God. It's God's word I want to say that on the front end, because I want the force of that, and I know all of you know this, but the force of that has to sit on us. It's God's word. It's his. He dispenses with it as he wills. And because we confess the word of God to be God's word, that shapes the way in which we come at this thing with all of its complexity and profundity. Now, I don't know how many of you have made any kind of front end of the year Bible reading commitments, right? God bless you if you've done that, right? I've tried many times and failed many times, right? Because you get out of the gate, Genesis is pretty hot. That's good stuff, right? People are killing each other. 
angels are sleeping with young women. I mean, it's, it's, it's wild. I mean, this thing's NC-17. Uh, like, well, this is good stuff. You get into Exodus, that's pretty good too. Um, a lot going on there. They start talking about the construction of the tabernacle and the details there. A little bit of a snoozer. Um, then you get to uh, Leviticus and you're out. Right, it's over. I'm going back to the Psalms. I know I can find a home there, right? Um, so the, the Bible doesn't necessarily come to us in the ways in which we wish it, wished it were packaged. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I, I get to leave tonight, so I hope it won't cause problems for you. You can ask me questions about this, but the Bible doesn't necessarily come to us in the way that we want it to be packaged. Jerome, um, one of the early church fathers who was one of the first real scholars of Hebrew in the Old Testament as a Christian, Jerome said, I left the beauty of Cicero's Latin for the barbarity of the Hebrew language. You know what he was saying? He was saying, when you compare the prose and the elevated style of Cicero's rhetoric and compare that to Deuteronomy or Kings or Ezra, the Bible doesn't even come close from a rhetorical standpoint to the elevated and the quality of, of, um, of a Cicero's prose. And he went on to say, and my leaving Cicero to follow in the footsteps of the Hebrew Bible was part of my leaving everything to follow Jesus. <laughs> I, would, I, I tell the students at Beeson, when you leave, learn Hebrew at Beeson, you should get spiritual formation credit because this is an act of Christian ascesis. This is an act of Christian self-denial. You're leaving everything to follow Jesus and you're learning Hebrew. Um, and it's rough. I mean, this is one of the things, too. I'm, I'm going to problematize all this and then wrap it up in a nice bow. Um, but, but uh, I mean, one of the issues that's been, I, I, I don't know if I even have my mind completely around it. But in his book on translation theory, George Steiner, who taught at Cambridge for years, one of the greatest literary theorists and critics of our time, um, George Steiner said, we've got a real problem that needs to be wrestled with when you compare the Psalms of the Old Testament to the King James Version's translation of it. And he presses into that. And by the way, you know, I grew up in a King James kind of world and then rebelled against it because I wanted to kind of move on to cooler pastures and the, whatever, the, the NASB or the new, new and accurate version, the NIV, or that's a little joke. I like the NIV. Uh, you know, so some sort of modern translation. But as I've gotten older, you know, I, I find myself kind of going back to the King James. It's this Elizabethan English, um, you know, uh, uh, who was the fellow? Ezra Pound, maybe the, I'm getting the name wrong. Um, but some literary theorists said that basically the English language was preserved and given a standard because of the King James Version in the Book of Common Prayer. I mean, it's incredible. Um, but here's the problem. The King James Version is better than the original. It's more beautiful. It's more fluent. I mean, something about Hebrew poetry is it comes at you in a kind of machine gun staccato way. The Lord, my shepherd is. I mean, it's like Yoda. Lord, my shepherd is. Want, I will not. Right? I mean, like, come on, you're just rough. All right. Um, and, and then here comes you know, Elizabethan translators like Lancelot Andrews. And the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I mean, who can better that? You can't. It's beautiful. Right. Um, so this is the, a reality that we face recognizing on the confessional end, number one, the Bible is God's word. The Bible does what the Bible does in the life of the church because God has deemed it to be so. 
I'm not going to make a kind of naturalist argument to say the reason why the Bible is God's word is because it's the best literature, because it's the most elevated style, because I'm not, that's a kind of Nostradamus, frankly, Qumran approach to the Bible. That's not a Christian approach. We recognize that the Bible is God's word in the face of the scandal of its creaturely character. It is a creaturely document written by human beings from, as one of my colleagues would say, from Genesis all the way to the maps, right? All of it, right? So you raise questions like, well, which part of the Bible is cultural and which part is not? The answer, all of it is, because it's written by people in time. Matter of fact, the leading proponent, I would say, and one of the clearer thinkers in the 20th century on the doctrine of inspiration, that is, the Bible is breathed out by God was a fellow that taught at Princeton Theological Seminary in its heyday named Bren- Benjamin Breckage Warfield. Is it Bre- Breckeridge? B.B. Warfield, right? Um, and Warfield furthered a notion of inspiration that we properly call organic inspiration. It's not dictation theories of inspiration. It's an organic model. What does that mean? That means that God uses the personalities of the authors and does not suspend their humanity or their creatureliness when he is giving them his word to write down and communicate. In other words, God uses the personality and the learning of a Moses, of a David, of a Paul, of an Ezra, of an Isaiah, of a David, of an Asaph, of a Peter, of a Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they come to us in these multi-perspectival ways with a different stamp on each character of the literature because God doesn't suspend the creaturely character of the Bible in an effort to move humanity out of the way. So the Bible is fully the Word of God. We confess that as a confession of our belief, but it's also fully creaturely, which means that we learn Hebrew and Greek, and languages, and we wrestle with what, what exactly is a cow of Bashan? And what's the significance of Song of Solomon talking about a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley, in that day? And what's the significance of, and the list goes on and on and on. Why? Because the Bible is born out of time and space and creaturely realities and creaturely personalities. This is where a doctrine, a Christian doctrine, to me, has been hugely helpful. And that is the notion of sanctification. Now, this is not a typical use or or doctrine that's used in the conversation about the Bible, but I have found it to be, frankly, life-giving. When we talk about sanctification in the life of the church, we're typically talking about a Christian's position and holiness in Jesus. Secondly, we're talking about a progressive sort of growth of holiness in the Christian life, okay? But when we apply the doctrine of sanctification to the Bible, what we're confessing is that God took human creaturely efforts, creaturely mediums of quill and vellum or chisel and clay tablet or papyri and pen, that he took these human instruments and these human authors and he set them apart. He sanctified them. He um, ordained that their work would be what he would take unto himself and use as the life-giving means by which God would communicate his very self to his people for the duration of the life of God's people in this world. Let's sort of let the weight of that sit on you. In other words, the efforts that Peter and David and Matthew put into writing a document 
Luke tells us very clearly in the first chapter of Luke that he's looking at sources and doing research and interviewing people. Some of you may have read Richard Balcom's book from a few years back called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. I mean, Luke strains to tell us, hey, by the way, I've interviewed people about this. Eyewitnesses who, you know, Luke's doing his homework. And God uses these creaturely activities and sanctifies them. He sets them apart as the unique means by which he will communicate himself to us. Now, why is this important? It's important because we want to affirm the creaturely character of the Bible. And we want to equally affirm, and I would even say more so affirm, that God uses these creaturely means to communicate his very word. And that those are not antithetical the one to the other. They're not. What does it say in Peter? The scriptures came to us by the Holy Spirit moving upon men as they were propelled and compelled by the Holy Spirit to write what it is that they wrote. And they did that in efforts of, and think about all the genres of the Bible. I mean, the Bible is a wild book, isn't it? You've got story. And by the way, I know that we're in a kind of day and age where telling your story and living into the narrative. I mean, this is all very sexy talk these days. Um, what's your story? And, but the Bible's one big narrative. I mean, you've got story all over the place. It's probably the dominant genre of the Bible. You've got story. You've got didactic literature, like Paul working through a tight, logical argument, Romans chapter 9, into chapter 10, into chapter 11, therefore chapter 12. And you better get your diagrams out and start working through that. I mean, even Peter said, you read that, Paul? He's hard to understand, right? <laughs> now, so you've got didactic literature. You've got the stories of the Gospels. You have prophetic literature. You have law. You have wisdom. You have counter-wisdom, like the book of Job and Ecclesiastes. You have stories about women like Ruth and Esther. And you've got poetry in the Bible. I mean, for you, and I'm kind of a cognitive, left-brainy kind of person, a few artists out there, I mean, you've got to just appreciate that the Bible comes to you with poetry in it, beautiful poetry. So in all of these various mediums and genres, God has sanctified these human productions as the instrument, the unique instrument by which he is going to give himself to the church. And that's why whenever we talk about the Bible, we have to talk about God and who God is. We can't talk about the Bible in an abstract way. We can't heist the Bible up and talk about it, divorced from all of these other commitments of Christian faith that we have around our talk about the Bible. What are some of our Christian confessions of faith, what we believe to be true about the gospel that shapes our engagement with the Bible, our understanding of the Bible? Well, number one, we believe that God is triune. We believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in an eternal life of inter-Trinitarian communication and love and self-giving to one another. There was no need, there was no necessity outside the life of God by which God had to do anything. The creator and the creature are always distinct. God never needed this world. And I, I, mean, I hope this is okay for your self-esteem, but God never needed you. Didn't need me either. But in an act of self-giving where God's inner life of infinite and beautiful love, communicative love, self-sustaining love, in an act of self-giving, God turns that love outward. And when he turns outward, he creates the world, probably creating space by removing himself so the world could be. But he creates the world, and then he sets himself to redeem that world. 
in God's own eternal conversation, creation and redemption flow out as acts of love. And I've got to talk about the Bible in the context of that particular God. Who is God? God's a God who says, I'm going to turn my love outward, and you're going to understand who I am, my true character, my true identity, when I give myself to you. Well, God, how do you give yourself to us? I give myself to you in creation, and I give myself to you in redemption. Flip sides of an equally important coin. I give myself to you in both of those. They're acts of grace, both creation and redemption. And God's giving us his word in the Bible. This 66-chapter book that we carry around leather-bound, God giving himself to us in this creaturely medium is an attestation that he loves us and that he wants to redeem us and that he's for us. And that from the creation of the world and even into the very eternal life of God, he's a God who said, I'm going to redeem and reconcile the world. And guess what? When God speaks, the world shows up. And when God speaks by the power of his word through the active agency of the Holy Spirit, when he does that, people come to know him. People get redeemed. So I've got to talk about the Bible in the context of my belief and confession about who God is. I've got to talk about the Bible and my confession about the gospel and salvation and what it means to be a Christian, turning to Jesus and recognizing that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has given himself to humanity by that sandaled figure who kicked up dust in the first century world. Because the Bible is the word of God because the Bible testifies to him that witnesses to him. You realize this right about the character of the Bible. The Bible's not meant to be self-referential. The Bible's not meant to curve in on itself. The Bible is the bony finger of Isaiah and David and Moses and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and especially John the Baptist. The Bible is the bony finger of the prophet saying, look away and see Jesus. See God. That's what the Bible's about. So I can't talk about the Bible in a way that abstracts it from my understanding about who God is. And I want to say one more thing about this because um, I've swallowed the Reformed pill, okay? And I've got to say this. The Bible is also operative in the life of the church by the active agency of the Holy Spirit. That is earth tectonic plates shifting kind of statement. Because what that means, in effect, is, and this goes all the way back to Calvin, it goes all the way back to Augustine, I believe it goes all the way back to the Bible. What that means is that the Bible, absent the operative work of the Holy Spirit, is black words on a white page. It's the Holy Spirit and his life of teaching. And you know that's the property of the Holy Spirit and the life of the church. The church, you all, Redeemer Community Church, you're the social organism by which the Holy Spirit teaches in the school of faith. You realize that, right? Now, I need to be careful here because you know, there's an old joke about this. Um, Lutherans understand the church uh, to be a hospital for sinners. Reformed, Presbyterian, Calvinist types, they tend to understand the church as um, an institute for doctrine. And uh, Episcopalians tend to understand the church as a country club. That's a, that's a little joke of my own people. It's bad. It hurts, but it's a lot of truth. Um, so I, I don't want to sort of redu- reduce this. Um, this. Cut that out. 
Pina, whoever's editing this. Just, I don't, that needs to be cut out. That was half a beer talking. Um, um, so, uh, but the, the church is the social organism by which the Holy Spirit does his teaching work, his teaching office, where the Holy Spirit communicates to us the presence of Jesus. I want you to think about that when you're reading the Bible, alone, individually. I want you to think about that when you come and hear um, Joel or Dwight or whoever else is preaching. I want you to have that conception of the Word of God that through these human conduits, which are submitting themselves to this document called the Bible, that God has given himself to us in a promise that he will not leave us without his Son. You realize, right, you know we just went through Lent and Holy Week, and I call that CNN Jesus Conversations 101, right? You just turn on the Discovery Channel, CNN, History Channel, all these Jesus documentaries. And and what's the big problem? Well, the big problem is the first century world, the ancient Near Eastern world, so different than our world. Got to kind of climb back in there and start breathing the falafel of the first century world to make sense of anything that Jesus had to say. I mean, you've got to enter into that world and smell leather and sheep and stuff, right? And I think what the church has said from its inception, the best of the Christian tradition has said, the problem with the Bible is never that it's an ancient document. That's not its problem. Why? Because that gap between the first century world or the 8th century BC world or the 10th century BC world, that gap is filled by the promised presence of Jesus via the teaching life of the Holy Spirit. I've got to have a robust doctrine of the Trinity whenever I talk about the Bible, or else all I, get, all I can do is get lost in the cultural morass that is the Bible. I've got to talk about it from the standpoint of God's own self, self-giving. What time is it? Oh, yeah. I have uh, five minutes. Um, sir, you can't leave. <laughs> That's my father. I got to <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have done that. Um, so, what am, what am I going to say for the remainder of the timer? Um, this is what I say, because you asked me to come here in the last, in the, to talk about how to read the Bible. I haven't talked about that at all. <laughs> all right. I've talked about what the Bible is, but I'm going to have to talk about the other part too. But why did I want to say all that? Because I think our instinct, especially on the far side of modernity, is to think that our reading strategies of the Bible are primarily intellectual problems to be solved. In other words, how am I going to read the Bible rightly? (laughs) How am I going to avoid making mistakes with it? And I think if left to our own instincts, our response would be, well, go to Beeson. Uh, or you know, take every Bible study possible. And by the way, I hope you do all those. So I hope you get the nuance that I'm coming at this way. But I think we tend to lead in that conversation and in the answer to the how do I read the Bible question with methodological answers. And the best of the Christian tradition has never led that way. Never. In fact, the best of the Christian tradition has responded to that kind of question by saying, well, the way in which you read the Bible and avoid reading it in error is by the posture with which you come to the Bible in any reading activity. Well, what kind of posture do I come with? 
I come with a posture that's shaped by my confession about what this thing actually is, all that stuff we've been talking about. Why? Because the Bible understands that it has implied readers. It assumes a certain kind of reader. Now, I know the Bible is studied in English departments all over America as, you know, an introduction to the Bible as literature. And I know that there are religion departments all over America that study the Bible as a, kind, as, as a species of either Greco-Roman antiquity or the ancient Near Eastern world. And let all, all of them have at it. I mean, that is fine. And I can learn from what they have to say. But the Christian commitment and Christian confession says, no, but I'm coming to the Bible with a certain understanding of what God means to do with his word by an act of self-giving and acts of redemption and salvation. And because that's the case, I've got to come to the Bible in such a way that the Bible assumes I'll be the reader that it's anticipating. It wants certain kinds of readers. What kinds of readers? St. Augustine. And if you want a good book to read over the summer, and I, I, I'm not joking here, I encourage you, take up this challenge on the beach right after you read, I don't know, whatever. Um, St. Augustine's On Christian Doctrine. It's not an easy read, okay? but it's a small read. And St. Augustine raises the, this question all the way back in the late 4th and early 5th century. How do you read the Bible? He doesn't talk about methodology at one turn at this point in his argument. He says you read the Bible in an act of fear, which shaped by love, which leads to piety. And what does he mean by that? What do you mean, fear, Augustine? What he means by that is, I come to the Bible with an attitude of humility, a posture of humility, recognizing the, the true source of this diverse canon of Scripture. The true source is God. And I come with a posture of humility saying, and this is right, for, this is almost a verbatim quote from Augustine, saying that whatever God has to say in this word, even in its difficult and least assimilable parts, is more important than the best thing that I can ever construct with my own thoughts and ideas. When I come to the Bible that way, and I submit my intellect and my will and my emotions to it, and open myself up to God's word, the searching, scrutinizing power of God's word to say, do with me as you will. Shape your church in light of this word, in light of your own self-giving. That is true fear. That is true piety. That is true love. And St. Augustine would say, and that is a true reading strategy. And do you know who stands up in the tradition and applauds Augustine there? Anselm. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Thomas Cranmer, and the list goes on. You don't have to look far within the best of the Western Christian tradition to find all of them saying a very similar thing that comes right out of the Augustine interpretive manual. We read the Bible in acts of humility and in dependence on the Holy Spirit to do his work. Now, I like Karl Barth. I know he's controversial, but I like him. Karl Barth was working within this Augustinian tradition as well, 20th century Swiss theologian. And Karl Barth, in his massive tome of a work called The Church Dogmatics, Volume 1, Part 2, he says, because all of this is true, he says this in multiple places, I have quotes, but I won't read them. Because it's true, the most important character trait 
the most important practical outcome that comes from, number one, our confession about what the Bible is. Number two, our understanding of the Bible and God's own redemptive purposes. Number three, our understanding that without the Holy Spirit, there is no Bible operative in the life of the church. All of that leads to one necessary exegetical or interpretive outcome, namely prayer. It's like, <laughs> of course, right? And we say that. Yeah, pray. And then where was everything, right? Where are my books, right? Pray. And, and no, it's <laughs> prayer. In fact, Bart goes on the offensive and he says, not only is prayer the most effective and the most necessary practical tool that one takes to the study of the Bible, it's teaching, it's preaching, it's personal study. Not only is prayer the most important practical tool, it's the only tool that will keep you from acts of disobedience. He goes on the offensive there. You want to be an obedient reader of the Bible? You want to avoid disobedience in your reading of the Bible? Bart says, you pray from beginning to the end. The Bible's wild, and the Bible's difficult. There are dragons in the Bible, dark alleys in the Bible, difficult questions, questions that I won't pretend to be able to answer all of them on this side of the eternity, and you won't either. Bonafide issues that we have to wrestle with. But I think this particular kind of confession of faith regarding what the Bible is that shapes, again, a reading strategy, a strategy that's shaped by fear, piety, love of God, humility, which leads to acts of dependence, which are most marked by the posture of prayer in the study of the Bible. I think that's a good way to kind of get out of the gate. All right? Break time. I'm going to get things going with, with the first question, if that's all right, because I know it's a question that uh, a number of you have come up to me over the years and have asked. Uh, the question is this, how do we know which parts of the Bible we are still supposed to obey? So when we're reading through scripture and we come to things like, uh, you're not supposed to eat shellfish, are we not supposed to eat shellfish? or you're supposed to keep the year of Jubilee and every 50 years sell back all of your possessions and give it to whoever. Um, what, what are the parts of the Bible that we, uh, we let go of and what are the parts of the Bible that we are supposed to hold fast to and say this is still for today that we are still to obey? Does that make sense? Sure, all sure. Right. Um, and do I need to repeat that question? Uh, I think that was good. Okay, good. <clears throat> um, that's a hard one. And and it's, and it's a question um, that the Christian tradition itself has wrestled with and will continue to wrestle with and has provided different answers for. Um, for example, you know, none, none of the men here, except for maybe Housen, I don't know, were worried about rounding off the corners of your beard you know, before you came in. Or um, you know, a little smoked mullet, I'll happy to eat some of those sort of you know, scavenger fish or whatever. Um, and Saul's barbecue, I mean, Lord help us, right? We want a little pork. Um, so the, the, the ways in which the, the Reformed tradition has answered that question is to make a distinction in uh, the Old Testament law between civil, ceremonial, and moral aspects of the law and the ceremonial aspects which have to do with a lot of the weird stuff that we read in the Bible, like, you know, when a woman's during her time of the month, she's not to come to worship. Or, and, and by the way, the best of Bible scholars, really conservative or liberal, 
um, are very careful now not to give some sort of natural account of why those laws matter. In other words, some, some of those laws are frankly given in the Old Testament just because Israel is supposed to be distinct. Not necessarily because pork is inherently bad for you or shrimp you know, can make your left toe fall off. I mean, it's, there's no, that, that, that kind of logic is not at work. It's about God making his people distinct. Um, you know, so you'll read some of these books about, you know, the Bible's diet and those kind of, I mean, I just be very careful about that kind of thing because there's not always a natural move between a certain law and a rationalized account for why that law was there. Um, so, you know, the moral laws, the Ten Commandments, um, and, and certain other aspects of the law. Now, the problem with that nice division between civil, ceremonial, and moral is that the law in the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, it doesn't come to us that way. It comes to us with civil, ceremonial, and moral aspects all interweaving and interpenetrating the one with the other. So that I think, you know, really instead of giving a kind of hard and fast abstract principle on how to answer that question, because the devil on this one lingers in the generalities. You kind of have to wrestle with each one on its own individual terms. Um, for example, and you all know this story in Acts 15, you have the Jerusalem Council. And now you have all these Gentile, Gentiles who are becoming Christians. And at that time, Christians were still understood as a species of Judaism. Um, it was a Jewish faith. And so here you have all these Gentiles that are becoming Christians, and this created all kinds of problems in the early church. So they had a council in Jerusalem. James, the brother of Jesus, sat as the kind of head of the synod, and, and they wrestled with, well, what laws apply to the Gentiles? Do you remember the three laws that they, it's kind of like, why those? You have what, what laws? You had um, uh, don't eat uh, blood, uh, avoid um, sexual immorality. And don't murder. Don't shed blood. And you think, well, those aren't too bad. And, but why those three? And the answer is, those three were chosen because in Leviticus 17 to 19, those were the laws that were applied to the alien sojourner in the land. So in other words, here you have the Gentile, I mean the Jewish Christians at Jerusalem wrestling through the implications of the law, even the ceremonial law, for converted Christians, and how did they do that? They let Leviticus shape the conversation. And for all of our you know, frustration with Paul and the law, how does Paul view the law? You have some weird stuff going on in Corinthians, right? I mean, you have a man that's sleeping with his stepmother. That's bad. Um, you've got another, a Christian taking another Christian to court. Not great. Lots of divorce going on. Uh, problems with idolatry when it comes to should we eat meat that's given to idols or not. And Paul's dealing with all these pastoral issues. He's like, well, Paul, how did you deal with them? Some very fine work has been done over the past decade, maybe 15 years to show. You know how Paul dealt with them? By thinking through the implications of the book of Deuteronomy and applying the law, Deuteronomy, and the way in which Deuteronomy dealt with these issues to the particular localized situation that Paul was dealing with. So I would say to you, and I hope this is okay, Joel, this might not have been the answer you wanted. Um, but you know, the Bible doesn't give you a neat and tidy picture, really, of anything. It demands interpretive work in the life of the church to think through a host of important 
issues in the life of the church. Divorce and remarriage. I've got to wrestle with a lot of texts on that. And a lot of people disagree on how they come to terms with that. Um, how about Bible verses on how, on the methodology of raising your kids? I've got four kids. They're all Philistines. Well, three of them are. My little girl's perfect. But the three boys are... I mean, they're Philistines to the core. You know what I mean, where, where does the Bible give me the answer to should I let her cry it out or not? Right? <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, the, the Bible. What's the Bible's answer to the question of whether or not a Christian can be involved in acts of warfare and killing? Um, it does. I mean, it's complicated. I mean, I, and I don't mean that to sound like a kind of get out of jail free card. I'm just saying. The Christian tradition has to wrestle with the Bible because the Bible doesn't come to you in a neat and tidy package. It comes to you in all those various genres, and that's where the hard work and the life of the church and the community of God's people, why you have to wrestle with these things. Now, I will say, again, just might as well stick my foot right in the fire on this. It is interesting, given where we are today in the life of the church, and I'm in the Episcopal church, so I'm in the deep end of the mess on all of this. It is interesting that the one area where the Bible speaks without clearing its throat and is univocal, and you can press back on me, and I know some of you here will want to. Now, but the one area where the Bible is univocal is in same-sex practice. I mean, that's one area where the Bible does not clear its throat in any way. That's a pretty clear demarcation that the Bible speaks univocally on that matter. But what about women's ordination? Should women be ministers in your church? I think your church says no to that. My church says yes to that. Um, that's a complicated issue. Um, what about, and the list goes on and on. So the point is, I think, again, this is why I'm going to go back to my first lecture. The most important part, and I tell this to my students, the most important character trait of readers of God's word, whether they are clergy or laity, is not accuracy, it's responsibility. Because your accuracy and your understanding of certain texts and your understanding of certain ethical issues might change over time as you continue to see yourself to a hearing of God's word and all of its complexity and profundity. But it's responsibility to be responsible with what you have as an act of service before, before the Lord. That's really important. And that's that humility of saying, I'm going to submit to the Bible and what the Bible claims even where it's uncomfortable, um, because that's the posture of the piety and the applied reader of the Bible. You remember Mark Twain's famous line? I love this line from Twain. Twain said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't get that bother me, it's the parts that I understand that bother me. Right? That's, that's the scandal of the Bible for the Christian. It's the parts that we understand. Do we really, are we re really willing to submit to the parts that we get I'm happy to debate the parts that are hard, but what about the parts that we get? Right, we understand that's, that's the challenge, I think. Hey, oh, thanks. Hi. Um, if you wouldn't mind, would you mind just talking a little bit about the Apocrypha and why um, kind of during the Protestant Reformation it was uh, eschewed from the canon? Yeah. Um, good question. Uh, this goes back to an early debate in the life of the church. And by the way, the question that you're asking is an area, and if you send me an email, find my email address on Beeson website. Um, I've, I'm just about 
to do, I've got an article coming out on this issue. I, I find it completely fascinating. It's fascinating. Because it has to do with the role of the Septuagint in the life of the church. And the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Bible that was produced in the second century BC and um, really became, in effect, the Christian Bible uh, probably very early in the life of the church. Why? Well, because it was in Greek. Very few people read Hebrew. Um, and the scope of the Hebrew canon was limited to the books that we know in your standard sort of English Bibles, but the Septuagint kind of had a tradition of growth over time that included these, these so-called deuterocanonical or, or apocryphal books like Maccabees or Tobit or Judith or Susan and the Dragon and you know, some, some of these uh, fascinating stories. And what people don't realize is the question about what books are in or out what books are canonical or not, which have a long shelf life in the life of the church and the synagogue? Well, the synagogue raised the question, or they framed it this way, what books solely the hands? What books make the hands impure so that you have to go wash your hands before you handle it, handle it again? Um, is Esther canonical or not? The rabbis debated that. Why? Well, Esther doesn't mention God once. So is it in or is it out? Song of Solomon, have you read that one? Pfft, blow your hair back, right? Um, is it in or is out? Um, and then in the church, you, know, you have questions that come with the New Testament, like Shepherd of Hermas, Second Peter, Revelation. So you had a distinction that was made in the early church between what was called homologumena and antilegumena. Homologumena were the books that everyone agreed on. Antilegumena were books that were disputed, and they were kind of on the periphery. Revelation, Second Peter, James, even right. Um, so this has had a long shelf life. The Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic tradition, they affirm tradition in a way that Protestants are a little bit more circumspect about. And it's, this goes all the way back to a debate between St. Augustine and Jerome in the late 4th, 4th century and early 5th century. Jerome said the Hebrew canon should be the authoritative canon. And Augustine said on the basis of inspiration and the basis of tradition, the Septuagint. Um, which included these apocryphal books, that should be the Christian Bible. And that has created a long debate in the life of the church. And by the way, it's a debate that exists to this day. Now, I would say not a ton rides on it from a do certain doctrinal perspective because, and I don't want to go down this road. I mean, this, the, the, but there are certain doctrines in the Roman Catholic Church, for example, like purgatory um, and some others as well that have warrant perhaps in apocryphal and deuterocanonical books, but not in the 27. Now, my answer to that. It's fascinating. The 39 Articles of Religion, which is the Anglican Confession of Faith, born out of the late 16th century, um, is the first document to identify the 27 books of the Old Testament that we know of in our English Bibles as authoritative and canonical with the other books as, quote, deuterocanonical. When the King James Bible was first published, it included the Apocrypha. Why? Oh, that was bad. I almost came down. Why? Um, because the 39 Articles said they're not canonical, they can't establish doctrine, but they're profitable and they're worth reading. And they should be read. Um, so it was included. But they weren't, they were viewed on a, on a lesser level. And the Council of Trent responded to the Reformation in the, in the, 17th, in the 16th century, in, in early 17th century, by saying no to that. No. 
um, the Apocrypha is included, and it's equally canonical. So you're right to identify the Reformation as the critical juncture by which these issues were worked out. I would just want to say, and I'm, I'm Protestant on this, I believe by confession of faith, really, that it's important for the synagogue and the church to share a common canonical deposit. That's important to me from a theological... Why? Because the oracles of God have been entrusted to the Jews. So that, that's a, that to me is important, that we share a common canon and scope when it comes to the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament. Um, but the Old Testament was doing its work happily, you know, for 1,600 years, 1,500 years um, in the life of the Eastern and the Western church while some of these questions were still being debated and disagreed upon. So that's why I'm slow to identify canon, right, our concept of canon, with list, formalized list, and have it more attached to a notion of sort of authoritative scripture, recognizing that within an ecumenical world, there is some debates to this day about what books are in and what books are out, and, and that's something that's a kind of interesting continued Christian phenomenon. You want to press back on that? I, I find, I mean, that was, we just went to the deep end of the pool, but I find the com- that question to be eminently fascinating. It's a good question. Um, I really appreciated everything you talked about tonight, but uh, one of the points you, we were talking about was, um, and forgive me if I'm not talking about this correctly, the organic theory of the literary history of the Bible. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about that in light of a discussion of biblical inerrancy. Biblical inerrancy. Um, well, I mean, the guy, you know, B.B. Warfield, the, the fellow who sort of framed orga- an organic theory of inspiration the way in which he did, um, you know, he's kind of, in many ways, the theological father of inerrancy within, you know, an American context as well. How many of you are familiar with that term? Am I, can I see hands? Inerrancy? Um, and, 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 okay. <laughs> Uh, highly contentious issue. Uh, it's an important issue. Um, and I'm going to just give you my spiel, and you can have someone else come in and give you a different spiel. All right. This goes back to that theory of knowledge. Um, I would be very... Now, what, what is inerrancy? Let's clarify this for, for people who are new to the scene. It's the claim that the Bible does not make any errors, factual errors, any, anything that the Bible claims is not an error. Um, and so that pushes the Bible into the, a corner to answer all. So, for example, was Paul Ptolemaic in his view of the universe, or was he Copernican? Was the sun the center of the universe, or was the earth the center of the universe? And if Paul viewed it the other way, does that mean now the Bible is an error? And there's all these kinds of questions that have been raised. Um, did Jesus die on Thursday, or did Jesus die on Friday? Uh, did Judas die by hanging himself, or did he fall off of a cliff, or did he hang himself and the tree branch broke and he fell off a cliff? Um, is Samuel right about the life of David with all the warts? I mean, his, you know, sleeping with Bathsheba, killing Uriah, Absalom riding through and getting caught by the hair and dying and getting run through. I mean, is that picture right, or is Chronicles right, where David is presented squeaky clean? with none of those attendant familial problems that you have in the book of Samuel. Uh, is Genesis 1 the proper creation account, or is it Genesis 2? Or do the two, how do the two relate? I mean, the issues are just enormous. I mean, there's so many, and I love them all. They're fascinating. Um, I would just say, and I'm giving you my perspective on this, 
Where inerrancy works positively for me is in an understanding about my own... That's not, I'm sorry, y'all. It's uh, my fellow Little League coaches. Um, <laughs> it's true. Um, it, where it works for me is in my understanding um, of my submission of my own intellectual autonomy to the foot of the Bible. Do I place myself over the Bible or do I submit myself to the Bible? That, that to me is what is the rub of the doctrine of inerrancy. But where I would also want to warn my evangelical brothers and sisters, and I put myself on that team, I'm talking about my family here, where I'd want to warn us, is to be very careful not to link biblical authority to the doctrine of inerrancy. That's been a problem, I think, that you see in the 70s, 80s, and the 90s in this particular discussion in the evangelical world, again, which is my team. I bat for that team, all right? Why? Because the Bible is authoritative because God says it is, period. In other words, I don't have to build up a sort of evidentiary claim to rule out all the problems that might, be, that might arise with the doctrine of inerrancy and then bolster all of it up so that now the Bible can be authoritative. No. The Bible's authority in the life of the church, and by the way, I'm with Karl Barth on this, we don't have the authority of Jesus in the life of the church without the authority of the Bible. You can't have the one without the other. My Episcopal brothers and sisters could really learn from that. Right? You can't have the one without the other. You want the authority of Jesus? Then you've got the authority of the Bible, both of them. But that is a properly basic confession of faith regarding my belief about God and his word. So I don't link authority to, to, to this particular issue. But, and, and here's the second thing. I don't have an a priori or a preconceived conception of what error is. Now this is where my reform juices come out big time, Right? In other words, I believe that the Bible doesn't make errors. I really do. But I also believe that whatever the Bible's doing, it's not an error. And therefore, my conception of error has to adjust in the light of the Bible and not vice versa. I feel pretty strongly about that, actually. I'll go offensive on that now. I've got so. in other words, if the Bible is constructing history in a certain way, and it moves the... I mean, you know, here's a problem for you. I hope I'm not raising problems for you, but here's one for you. Um, did Jesus cleanse the temple a couple days before he died or at the beginning of his ministry? Synoptic gospels say he did that a couple days before he died. John's gospel puts it right after John chapter 2 at the beginning of his ministry. When did he do it? Well, I'm happy to say he did it twice if that helps you sleep at night. Or we can say that narrative sequence in the Bible doesn't necessitate historical, chronological sequence, and, and the gospel writers can move things around. And if they're doing that, and I'll just say if, maybe they're not, but if they are, then my conception of error has to adjust in light of the Bible and not my hard and fast rules being applied to the Bible. I was thrown, this was a big issue for me in seminary, and it's a big issue for a lot of my students. I was thrown a, drown, a raft when I was drowning on this issue from one of my own seminary profs who said very helpfully, and this is by a very conservative evangelical institution. Truth does not equal precision. That was helpful for me because I think one has to have a certain level of flexibility on some of these things to wrestle through the dynamic. But you know, I've said enough on that. So I, when, if there's an inerrancy statement, I can sign it. 
in, in good conscience. Like, I don't, I don't go to bed and start sweating. I mean, I, good con- I can sign it. But I'd like to tell you what I mean by that. And what I mean by that is I believe that my intellectual autonomy um, is going to be submitted to what the Bible claims. And if the Bible claims something, then it's true. But, and this is a big deal to me too, but it's not always self-evident what the Bible is claiming. And there can be different interpretive outcomes regarding what its claims actually are. And that's a different sort of thing, I think, that one has to keep some distinctions between things that are relatively similar. You, you want to press back on that? Okay. There's a statement on biblical inerrancy, the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. Is that helpful um, in that it does broaden that term? This is what we mean by inerrant. Like, you're allowed to round up numbers um, or things like that. It yeah. just, if yeah. the number's off a little bit, it, well, the Bible rounds it up. It's yeah. not an error yeah. that it rounds yeah. it up. Yeah. I mean, there are certain aspects. I mean, th- this was a statement that was devised in the 70s, Joel. J.I. Packer, or a group like that, um, wrestling with giving a fuller account of what we mean by inerrancy. It goes back to the, the question that was asked uh, just, just now. And I, I think it's helpful. I mean, I, I mean a, a critic of that statement could say that's a death of an idea by a million qualifications. Uh, I think that's a, a, a criticism that someone could, could level. I mean, for example, um, and I like this about the statement, it's helpful. When the Bible says the sun is rising, that's an observational account of reality. It's not a scientific claim. So if you're going to come at that and say the sun doesn't rise, it's the earth. I mean, it's like that's just stupid. I mean, they're going to say that. Of course. I mean, we, we know that there are observational accounts of reality that don't necessarily correspond to how things actually are on a scientific account of things. And I think the statement can be helpful to adjudicate some of those kinds of problems. I think there are certain aspects of that statement that can be brought into critical tension with its own affirmations. And I find that an interesting project. But as a place to kind of get out of the gate to say, what does this mean? And how can it be helpful? And what are its limitations? I think the Chicago Statement's a a fine place. Now, you didn't ask this, and I probably shouldn't say it, but the Chicago Statement on hermeneutics, which came after the fact, I don't like it. I just don't like it. but, but as far as the, that one, you know, the, 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 the statement on interpretation makes me sweat, makes me very nervous. Um, but. I'm, I'm trying to think of the most complicated question I could ask you. That's Brandon Bennett. That's right. Could you just talk about the Old Testament and the life of the church? You know, it's important. Coming to a Christ-centered reading of the Old Testament, is it just history? Is it important for us? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, the first bad guy in the life of the church in the second century was a heretic by the name of Marcion, and he's most remembered for the fact that he wanted to jettison the Old Testament. He just, you know, he came with a kind of Gnostic worldview that saw the material world as inherently evil and the, the, pneuma, the pneumatic or the spiritual world as that's where true being and essence and purity is. And you get into the Old Testament, and it's messy and earthy, and that certainly cannot be the same God that we have in the Revelation in Jesus. So, you know, Marcion takes a Jeffersonian approach to the Bible and pulls out his whiteout and his scissors, and he cuts out anything that feels like the Old Testament to him. So, I mean, just think about it. The first bad guy in the life of the church, the first heretic that forced the church to clarify its thinking on a matter, um, the presenting issue was the Old Testament. And so, you know, and who do you have? Tertullian, Irenaeus, coming out with books entitled Against Marcion. I mean, the church fathers knew how to fight. 
I mean, I'll say that. I mean, there's no, I mean, how's that for the title of a book? You're wrong. I mean, that's going to be it. Um, and, uh, and, it's, and it was very important. I mean, you will, there's a lot of debate among um, historians of religion, er, historians of the early church. When was the New Testament canon formalized and stable? Second century? Theodore Zahn argues that. Fourth century? Adolf von Harnack. Lots of debates. And you'll hear people land, you know, who talk about this, say, the church operated without a canon for two centuries or four centuries, depending on where you are. And there's always a magnificent, gaping hole in that discussion. And that is the church never, and I'm including the apostolic period, all the way up into the fourth century, if that's the time when the New Testament canon was formalized and established and stabilized, the church never operated without a canon. Never. Why? Because it received Israel's scriptures as a Christian witness, and this is crucial, in an unredacted form. In other words, the New Testament authors... The early church writers, the apostolic fathers, they saw no need to baptize the Old Testament by sliding Jesus' name in there. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were tossed into the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar looked in and he saw a fourth person, Jesus of Nazareth. Right? It doesn't do that. Um, Isaiah 52, 13, behold my servant, comma, Jesus Christ, comma. I mean, it doesn't do it. It allows the Old Testament in its given literary form to be a Christian witness right off of the level of its surface literal sense. It's one of the great achievements of the church. The church has never operated without the Old Testament as Christian scripture. And I would say this, and I love the way that Hans von Kampenhausen, he's a scholar of the, of the early 20th century, the way in which he framed the issue. And I think this is provocative, but he's right. The problem in the early church was not, what do we do with the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures now that we have Jesus? It was actually quite the reverse. How do we understand Jesus in light of the assumed character and the assumed canonicity of our Hebrew Scriptures? That was the instinct. And think, think about it. I, I, you've got the New Testament completely on your side on this. Here's Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus. Cleopas, unnamed disciple. They don't know who he is. I mean, I maybe talked about this here before, so forgive me if this is a repeat, but um, I mean, if there's instant replay in heaven, I want to see this story. It is, it is funny. It's intense. I mean, Jesus said, they asked Jesus, and you get this, right? they asked Jesus, do you not know what happened around here? And Jesus says, well, what are you talking about? They crucified Jesus. And Jesus is like, oh, really? Is that, was that what happened? And so they're going back and forth. And, and then what does Jesus do? Jesus has a Bible study with them explaining to himself, to them himself, on the basis of the law and the prophets. And then when he broke bread, that's enough to make a kind of sacramentalist out of some of you, right? You got the Bible, you got the breaking of the bread. When they break the bread, they see Jesus, and then Jesus is gone. And then at the end of the chapter, he comes back. And what does Jesus do? He sits with his disciples, and he has a Bible study. And he explains to them the significance of, them, of himself on the basis of the law, mo, of the prophets, and the Psalms, it says at the end of Luke 24. And the Psalms, for those of you who know this, the, the, the Hebrew canon is broken into three parts. You have the law, you have the prophets, you have the writings. And in most canonical orderings, not all, but in most canonical orderings, the Psalms are the first book of that last section of the Hebrew canon called the writings. 
it's, I'm pretty persuaded that when Jesus said that in Luke 24, he wasn't just talking about the Psalms. He was saying the law, the prophets, and the Psalms as the titular head of all of the writings. In other words, all of it witnesses to me. Isn't that crazy? Jesus is having a Bible study and explaining the significance of himself on the basis of the Hebrew canon. So the, the, the Hebrew canon, the scriptures, the Old Testament, I'm stealing this from my own doctoral supervisor, but they are not the booster rockets on the space shuttle that once we've got into New Testament orbit, they can sort of fall back into the ocean and they've done their work. The Old Testament is a continued witness to our understanding of who God is. And in fact, it pressures us to understand God in a triune way and in a redemptive way that's shaped by the gospel. So, I mean, you, you touched touch the raw nerve, Brandon, and I know you knew you would. Um, but uh, that, I mean, that, that to me is the, the role of the Old Testament. I feel like that's part of my vocational calling. You know, to exercise Marcion's ghost in the life of the church wherever he resides. May his ghostly posterior be kicked again and again, right? I mean, I didn't. Could you speak a little to the um, daily office and lectionary in your tradition and how it plays out in the devotional life of the church? Well, I'm not good at it. I mean, um, I mean the, the daily off, the, the lectionary, you, you all do Lectio Continuo, right, Joel? Like you preach through books one chunk at a time kind of thing. Um, in my tradition in the Anglican world, we do set readings that kind of work through a three-year cycle. And so it kind of gives you a coverage of the Psalms and an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading. And, um, and then the daily office, you know, you, you kind of get through the Bible in a year and then the Psalms, you know, you know or, or at least the Bible in every two years and then the Psalms, um, you know, multiple times. Um, you know, it depends on what day of the week you catch me. I mean, I, I, I think that those are great gifts to the church. I have a Catholic little C sensibility in me that sees the value in that. Um, I recognize the danger of, um, of uh, the lack of whole council preaching when you get lost in one book for five years. I was in a church that did Romans for three and a half years. It was a rich experience, but I get how you can get lost in Romans and forget there's a lot of Bible there. Um, so this is my answer to that. My answer is, in my tradition, if you're going to do lectionary preaching, which I find a lot of value in that, you have to have attached to that a robust teaching life in some sort of Christian education setting. So for example, the Advent, where I am, we do, lectio, I mean, we do the lectionary uh, preaching, okay? Um, so it's going to be a gospel reading, it's going to be a, an epistle reading, it's going to be an Old Testament reading. But at the same time, when you go into our Sunday school hour, our dean is, is teaching Lectio Continua through Acts. I'll do, I just finished something through John. Uh, another person's doing something in Romans. So you have Sunday school offerings where you're going through a sort of a sustained a movement of a large book of the Bible. I think those are both necessary to one another, and both would be attenuate or lessened, weakened, if they didn't have the influencing presence of the other, right? So I, I see the value in both. Um, and, you know, I, you know the old story about Calvin, right? Calvin g gets kicked out of, um, out of Geneva. They run him out of town because he gets into a conflict. I think he was preaching through Ezekiel. Might be wrong, maybe De Deuteronomy, but I think he was Ezekiel. He's gone for three-something years in Stroudsburg with Bootser. And then they called the city council, calls him back. It's past. He didn't want to go, but he calls him back. 
And you know what Calvin does the next Sunday? The next verse where he left off three years before. It's like, where were we? Right? And then we move on. So I see, you know, I've got enough of that in me to see the value of Lectio Continua or whole book teaching. But if you do lectionary preaching like you do in my world, um, you know, I think it has to be connected to the teaching office of, of whole books. I don't know if that got to your question or not, but yes, sir. Um, so you don't know me. You don't know where this question is coming from. Okay. Um, how, I guess my question has to do with uh, the, the knowledge that you have and how it relates to the Bible and the way you read it from, um, you know, inspiration from God type of level. Like, you have a full knowledge of the Bible, right? You can just say, yeah, I mean, you answer questions very well, but then, you know, pulled back from the, you as an educator and you as your job to do, to teach these sorts of things. Like, how do you, how does the Bible, and how do you read the Bible on that level? Um, yeah. Okay, so, um, Gosh, I'm, maybe I'm not thinking through the question well. So you want to know how, how I think about the Bible, like personally, um, sort of detached from the fact that I pay my mortgage by doing this? Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, good question. That's a good question. And um, not one that, uh, um, you can see this is, too, this is a personal question. Um, not one that I have an easy answer to because um, there are difficulties involved when God is your business. You know, Eugene Peterson, in a little essay that he wrote on seminary, he said, no one leaves seminary unscathed. And he was right. Um, and, you know, I'm prayerful. And I, I don't want to live in a dichotomous view of, of the mind, the life of the mind, and the life of the affections. I don't want to see those two as antipodal to one another, like they can't be in unison with one another. I, 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 want, to, I want to believe that when I'm parsing Hebrew verbs with students, that that's an act of worship. Um, you know, when I'm wrestling with what in the world is Ezekiel doing in chapter one, and having to think through that, that that's not... Um, devoid of a life lived before God. Um, you know, can I refer to Karl Barth again? Karl Barth said that the Christian theological task is prayer and labor. I would say that's a pastor's task. That's a Christian's task, prayer and labor. But I think, you know, the instinct is to think of those as compartments, like I pray and then I labor. That's not what he meant. He meant that all of our labor in the hard work of thinking hard after Jesus. We're talking about God. You know, it's like, I mean, that's why, I'm sorry to keep quoting him. That's why Bart said, you might have great lawyers and great statesmen. You might have great doctors. I mean, I, my father just had a, a procedure done. D Davies runs the, the, the heart team at UAB. Incredible what these people can do. A great doctor, right? But, but Bart says, but you can only have little theologians. You can only have little pastors. Why? Well, because of this, our subject matter, what we, do, what we do for a living is too big, too enormous. It's, we are, um, I mean, Bart used to say that the angels are looking down and laughing at what old Bart's doing today. They're just laughing at him, right? Um, 
I live in that tension. I feel that. And, you know, it's, sometimes it's a job. Sometimes the affections roll in. Sometimes it's dry. Sometimes the thought of reading the Bible today or teaching a class. I've literally been in my chair in my office and thought, you know, I would rather go, I don't know, do anything than go and talk to these students right now. Right. Um, then you go and you offer a prayer up on the way in the door and things happen. You know, I, it's, there's a, there are dangers in the kind of job that I have in the kind of work of ministry. Um, and, you know, so I, so I, I don't know if that's answering your question, but um, I don't want to, I want to believe that the life of the mind and the life of the affections do not have to be at odds with one another. Um, that you can think hard after Jesus he deserves it. He demands it. And you can feel hard after him. And I don't have to... You know who the greatest example of that, I think, in the American theological scene is? Jonathan Edwards. I mean, Jonathan Edwards is probably the greatest philosophical mind America has ever produced. I'm not just talking about theologian. I mean philosophical mind. This guy was a genius. When God was handing out brains, Jonathan Edwards went through the line like 10 times. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I was writing a treatise on spiders at the age of eight. I mean, it's, it's crazy. But Jonathan Edwards said, you know, we need light and heat. We need the, the opening of the intellect and the mind, and we need heat of, a, of the affections. We need both. And he uses the great illustration of honey. He says it's one thing to talk about honey. It's one thing to give a kind of academic account of honey. But it's another thing to stick your finger in the jar and taste it. He said, you know, Christians need both. You need light and you need heat. Um, I have to believe that's true. I don't always live into that faithfully, to be honest with you. I struggle with that. Um, but I have to believe that that aspect is true. That was awkward. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one more. So... Um, Speaking about like Jesus being present throughout the Old Testament, how do you temper that with like not you know seeing Jesus under every rock, um, like they did in the Middle Ages and you know? Well, I like the Middle. I mean, to be honest with you, I've got a soft place in my heart for medieval exegesis. Um, you know, so I you know, and that's a long conversation. I I think you know, um, but I get your point. In other words, uh, we don't want to do a kind of proof-texting approach to the Bible where we're finding Jesus under rocks and trees. How does the whole of the Old Testament canon witness to the reality of Jesus? The best answer that I can get to you, again, we want methods, but I think I, I'm learning to talk more in terms of instincts than methods now. Now, I teach, so I've got to give some kind of method, but it's instincts. Cyril of Alexandria, fourth-century theologian, great theologian, and an allegorist, like a medieval kind of reader, right? Um, I mean, Cyril said in his preface to the commentary on Jonah, and I love the way he framed this because I think he's spot on. He said, reading the Old Testament through a Christian Trinitarian lens is like a bee that flies through a meadow and knows what flower to land on and what flower not to land on. That flower will yield honey, that one won't. And that's an act of discernment that I think grows with time, probably reading the Bible in light and in conversation with the best of the Christian interpretive tradition. 
I mean, I'll give you an example of this. I'm sorry I've mentioned Bart so much because I'm really not a Bartian and I'm quite critical of him on some significant matters, but I'm, I'm going to say his name one more time. Um, Bart says, do you want to know how the Old Testament, one angle in which the Old Testament witnesses to Jesus? Answer, the whole history of Israel. And it was not just a text here, 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 Psalm 22, verse 1, Psalm 2, verse 8, Psalm 110, uh, Jeremiah 33, verse 21, Micah 5, chapter 2. I mean, we've got all of our texts. He's like, all those are fine. But the whole history of Israel in its election and its rejection is a witness to the reality of Jesus Christ. That begins to get into a textured, whole cloth reading rather than, you know, here he is, a kind of where's Waldo approach. Is he there? Is he there? Is he there? Um, because I think, you know, one gets into a lot of dangers with that. Thank you, Mark. Uh, since we are meeting again tomorrow night, or another group is coming in, if you want to come back, you're welcome to. We don't have to fold up chairs or anything. You chose the right night. Uh, we don't have to take them down to trucks in the pouring rain, which we've had to in all the years past. So just leave everything here. Just throw stuff away. And uh, how about I will close us in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together. We pray that through your spirit you would write your truths onto our hearts uh, and that we would see Jesus more clearly and that you would stir our hearts in affection towards him. Uh, bless us as we go. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.